You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear Lord, we ask that, as always, you'd send your Holy Spirit to illumine the truth to us, to help us separate um, in our minds and hearts fact from fiction, mostly so that we might be drawn to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And we ask that today, Holy Spirit, even in a class setting, that as a result of being here, you might make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us for having been here. Amen. So um, I'm taking a kind of guided study course that is my final doctoral class before I have to write my thesis. My thesis is on um, actually all this stuff. It's on Cranmer. It's on justification by faith alone and his application of that doctrine in worship form in hopes that I might continue to be able to, uh, in my broader ministry to Christ church, help us understand what gospel-centered, gospel-shaped worship looks like. But in this last class, one of the things that I wanted to do is be able to read a lot of Augustine um, because he had a major influence on a lot of the thinkers who poured their hearts and souls into the Reformation and listened to the scriptures afresh. And when they listened to the scriptures afresh and found it contradicting a lot of the messaging that they'd gotten from the received church at the time, they found great comfort that someone like Augustine who was a millennium before them, was observing those same, same things from Scripture. So one of the interesting things uh, for me, being able to read Augustine for himself for the first time, rather than through these other thinkers. Uh, in fact, I was just reading last night, and I was impressed yet again by how much, I'll just I'll say it this way, in every generation, one of the greatest threats to Christ's church and the gospel is self-righteousness. In every generation, one of the greatest threats to Christ's church and the gospel is self-righteousness. And why is it that it crops up in any, every generation, no matter how culture changes, no matter how culture evolves? Why is it that Augustine's problem was Luther's problem, was our problem? Because as they would read the scriptures and as Paul would teach us, the old Adam, the old Eve, the flesh, desires to like the the worshipers at the Tower of Babel, desires to approach God on our own, to build our own ladders to the Lord, to approach God based on our merit, to show him that we've got something to offer such that he would love us. That's that's the default of the flesh. And I will tell you that that drives everything that human beings are driven by. We could go down the row in anything that you are deeply passionate about, is born of that kind of fleshly instinct that needs to be overhauled and replaced by the love of God in Christ Jesus and by the new creature, the Spirit of God, Christ himself. It's why Paul said, you know, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not I, but Christ who lives in me. If there's any good work that's going to come out of me, it's going to be Jesus in me, the engine, right? And so in any, every generation, one of the greatest threats in Paul's day, in Augustine's day, in Luther and Calvin's day, in our day, is self-righteousness. And I think Cranmer understood this 
when it came to public worship, when he wrote his preface for the first English prayer book in 1549, here's what he wrote. This is the first sentence. There was never anything by the wit of man so well devised, so sure established, which in continuance of time hath not been corrupted. All right, what a way to start a prayer book. There's an optimistic view of what's about to take place, right? What he's saying there is, I observe in the scriptures and in my own flesh an ability, an incredible ability to corrupt everything that I touch. It's like the reverse Midas touch. I don't turn everything to gold. I turn everything to sin and corruption. That's me and my flesh, all right? And so what he was pointing out is that this is true of Christian worship as well. This is true of Christian worship as well. One of the reasons, Cranmer would say, that we need a new prayer book is because over time our self-righteousness creeps in and it shapes the way that we do our worship. And then the way we do our worship starts to shape us It's kind of a symbiotic relationship between the way our flesh corrupts our worship and the way the worship, by its repetition and formation, corrupts us, okay? So today, as we talk about uh, the structure of the Holy Communion liturgy proper, I want to put that thought before us. Our two goals from the class have been to better connect our head and our heart to what's going on and to tune our ears, particularly to hear the gospel. I hope maybe... If you've been here in the last three weeks and then you started engaging our liturgy, that the gospel's been a little more clear to you. You've been able to sort of hear the word of God afresh and the word of God's been working on you. If that's happening, that's exactly what I hoped would happen, right? The theology of the prayer book, the central question being asked during the time of the Reformation, which is when the prayer book came out, how are people changed? And that answer was by a work of God in the heart And that was kind of a rediscovery of the the biblical idea that we're not changed by external coercion. We're not changed by guilt. We're not changed by telling us to do better and be better. But it's got to be a work in the heart. And how does God do this work? Through his word, particularly in the gospel. Particularly in the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. That Jesus Christ died for sinners. It's an affront to this fleshly self-righteousness to say, I've got to admit that I don't have what it takes. But then it's good news that in that admission comes a word from the Lord that says, Christ has provided for you what you couldn't possibly provide for yourself. A righteousness that Paul would say is apart from the law, by faith alone. The driving force, therefore, behind the Reformation and the driving force behind a Reformation understanding worship can be summarized in this statement. That the word of God is what creates faith in you. The word of God births faith. How are you to live unto righteousness, unto God? By the word of God, by faith in the Son of God. If there's going to be any faith coming out of you that says, I love the Lord. Any faith coming out of you that causes you to love your neighbor well. It's going to be through the word of God, particularly in the gospel, doing a work in your heart. So we look through this diagram. The word of God comes down to us, and in response, faith responds back up to God. We saw how those things cycle through both the morning prayer and uh, Holy Communion liturgies, that we see this kind of pattern of the way it grinds and where gospel grooves into our soul, right? So the heart of the prayer book was unleashing that very word to convert, yet again, your heart through the gospel.
your flesh, your, what remains in your flesh, that self-righteous part of us that always wants to kind of rise up again, needs to be put in its place, pressed down, mortified by the gospel. So we looked at these, all these elements of communion and said, what's one way that we can think through the structure of Holy Communion? It's got two parts, a very ancient structure to the liturgy. The first part we call, or is historically called the liturgy of the word. The second part is historically called the liturgy of the upper room. And uh, in case this might be unfamiliar language, the upper room is that place where Jesus first instituted the Last Supper. You read in the Gospels, that night, the night on which he was betrayed, he takes the disciples to an upper room and it's in the middle of Passover and they're eating a meal together. And then during this ordinary moment, Jesus makes a declaration. He says, this, this bread, it's my body, it's for you. This cup, it's my blood, it's for you. And Jesus instituted this liturgy of the upper room in a way. And we, in faithfulness to his ordinance here, this sacrament, we is a, is a feast that we keep, right? So we're going to focus on part two, the liturgy of the upper room, because that's where all the heat is in liturgical history. It's where all the blood was spilt. It's where a lot of ink still being spilt. So we're going to take a look. And again, I want to look back at this. The word of God, it births faith, right? I want to put before us a paradigm, and then I want us to look at the communion liturgy. And if we have time at the end of that, maybe we'll have time to sort of gloriously look at the post-communion prayer, but I'm not sure we're going to have time to do that. I want to put before us two paradigms that when the Word of God comes to us, the fact that it's first is important because that means it's grace. It's a gracious word. You know, if, if we got God's Word to come to us to tell us how much God loved us in response to our faith and faithfulness, that's a very different paradigm than while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, okay? So it's really important that we understand that when the word of God comes to us, it comes to us unprompted by anything we do. God reveals himself to us simply because he loves us and chooses to reveal that word to us. Were we to be left to ourselves, which would be our deserved consequence of rebelling against the Lord in Adam and in Eve, that would be, our, that would be the, the just consequence that God would sort of depart his presence from us, you know? That would be fair. That would be the right thing. And yet God says, no, I'm going to reveal myself through the scriptures and principally through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. I'm going to reveal myself. That's grace. He didn't have to do that. That's God condescending to you and to me. God's word about Jesus coming down to us first. The, even, the fact that we know who Jesus is and, and what he's done in the Bible is a gift of God by God's grace. And that produces in us, this is the biblical paradigm of the way gospel-centered Christianity works. Faith in response, which is prayers and offerings in response. Now, if we're trying to ritualize this, you know, because this is a paradigm for life. This is the Christian life right there. I'm not talking about liturgy. I'm talking about your life. If you're going to interact with God on a regular basis, it's because God's coming at you in his word. He's doing a work on you. He's sort of forcing you back to him to say, God, I need you. And God's saying, I've provided. Remember my provision for you. Stay here. Repent yet again. You know, all of life is repentance. Martin Luther's first of the 95 theses. All of life is repentance, right? 
So if this is a paradigm for the Christian life, one of the things that Christian worship is, is a kind of ritualized form of the Christian life. It's meant to sort of drill into you the patterns of the way a Christian relates to God from Monday through Saturday. And the fact that we worship every week is a grace of God in and of itself because you and I in our flesh, in our self-righteousness, will want to forget the way this works. We'll want to, on our own, start to think that we're kind of doing okay. You know, I haven't killed anyone this week. Everything's okay. God likes me. I'm not as bad as all these people I see in social media, you know. We're always comparing. We're always thinking of ways to pull ourselves. And we need this word, this gracious word that says you don't measure up, don't forget. You need Jesus, right? So this gracious word comes down to us and in response. So worship, gathered worship is a ritualized form of all of life, which means that we need these patterns of grace and faith. And it often comes in the form of these kind of scriptural overtones and overtures of God. We observe those cycles, right? And then we saw that oftentimes in liturgy, the response to that is prayer the response to that is offering or words of offering or words of dedicating ourselves. That's the liturgical shape of the gospel, okay? Now, I explained why this ordering is important. That's a gospel-based structure. If you want your liturgy to be gospel-based, you're always front-ending the word of God and you're back-ending your response. If you get the order wrong, it starts to shape you in a different direction. So I'm asking the question, what if the order were reversed? What if, what if in liturgy and in structure, our faith, our expression to God, God, I love you, God, our adoration, came before there was any sort of structural form where the word of God comes to us and declares grace? How would you eventually be shaped if this was the week-in, week-out structure of the way that you related to God? Number one, I think we'd have, I mean, we're already a pretty nervous congregation. We're already a pretty anxious people just because we're fleshly creatures. But I would imagine that we'd be so much more anxious, so much more guilt-laden on a week-to-week basis if we thought that this, faith precedes the word of God, is how Christian life works, okay? If our prayers and offerings, ritualized, come to God, and then we get the goodness of God, That's what we call a merit-based structure, okay? These are kind of my words of describing how this works. Those are the two paradigms, gospel-based structure, merit-based structure. Do you see? I know it's basic, but it's going to be really important as we look at the communion liturgy. Are we ready? So because the gospel was at the heart of any true power in worship, the reformers were concerned to promote two things as they formulated the prayer book. I want you to hang on to these two hooks, okay? First, they... They wanted to emphasize that if we're going to be shaped according to Christ and the gospel and the truth of God's word, the structure of the liturgy must be gospel-shaped. The word of God must always precede any kind of faith, prayer, offering back to him, right? But this other part was important too. Number two, avoidance of worship words, practices, and rituals which distracted from the clarity of the gospel's voice, okay? They were deeply concerned about this because when they read the scriptures, they discerned that this is, this is 101, the difference between something that's truly Christian and something that's not. I found, 
Augustine was so razor sharp about this. He wanted to make sure to discern, you know, clearly this is what Christian is. And the Pelagians who want to call themselves Christians, Augustine was quick to say, no, because the way you approach God is based on merit. And once you do that, you're not in the Christian fold. You're not talking about coming to God through Christ. You're, coming, you're talking about coming to God kind of with a little bit of help from Jesus, but not through him, with his help. And so he's quick to, to kind of draw those lines and distinctions, okay? So now pull out your handout. When the liturgy came, I want us to read through this liturgy. On the front side, you have the historical evolution of this particular liturgy of the upper room, okay? Left column, 1552, right column, all the way to Advent, 2016, all right? On the back, you have what these prayers are, okay? Because I, I don't presume that, you know, everybody's familiar with all this language of anamnesis and epiclesis and words of institution, right? We just pray through this liturgy without knowing what these sections of these prayers are called, which is fine. You don't necessarily need to know them. But in order to understand the way the structure has evolved and the way that this, what I just showed you, this paradigm of gospel-based versus merit-based, I want us to kind of walk through, so turn to the back now where these prayers are, and we're going to speak through what would have been the, uh, the original liturgy together. I'm going to do that so that we can kind of digest it. I'm going to analyze and talk about that, and then we're going to talk about the evolution over time and see whether our paradigms help us. So I'm going to jump us around because this order on your back is based on the 1979 prayer book, which in right one is largely based on 1928, throwing out a bunch of dates at you. But um, I'm going to have a skip around to the way the liturgy read in 1552 and mostly in 1662. So I want us to read all of this together. You know, there's, normally we hear the minister read some of this, but let's read all of this. And we start with the Great Thanksgiving, also called the Sorsum Corda in Latin. That, that's uh, Latin for lift up your hearts, all right? So let's read the Great Thanksgiving. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. It is very meet, right, and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God. Proper preface. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Sanctus now, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord Most High. Stop. 1552, the next prayer, interestingly, is the prayer of humble access. So let's go there. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Next part, 
left column, opening prayer. Let's read it. All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. And now read the lines after 1552. Hear us, O merciful Father, we beseech thee, and grant that we, receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. And then, the only thing left before reception are these words, the words of institution. So let's read them together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as oft as ye shall drink it in remembrance of me. And the people come forward and they receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee. That was the original ordering of the 1552 and apart from adding the Lord's Prayer. Now turn back over. Apart from adding the Lord's Prayer in 1662, because oddly enough, in the 1552 prayer book, in the communion liturgy, there was no praying of the Lord's Prayer. Um, so they added that back in in 1662. But between that 100-year time, this is the way England um, and the English-speaking world was sort of sanctioned to worship the Lord is with this structure. As you look at these two columns, one of the things that you notice that's very purposeful when compared to later liturgies is that between the words of institution and the actual reception of those elements is zero distance. Why? Why would they want zero distance? This was a change to the received liturgy of the time, that there would be zero distance between institution and reception. Between the time you heard Jesus' words and you received. Why? Because in between there, were a host of prayers that almost backtracked from receiving that word of God. The word of God comes down. The only thing left to do when the word of God comes at you, gospel-based structure, is to receive by faith that word. And then only after that in response. So you notice in 1552, after reception, you see this word oblation in the post-communion prayer. Those were two options because these words, now turn to the back again. Oblation is what's called uh, the onum, or below the anamnesis and epiclesis in the middle. Listen to this prayer. And now you can maybe discern why this was moved away from after institution 
before reception, why it was moved away from being the gap between those. Listen to this. We earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits of thy death and death of thy son Jesus Christ, through faith in his blood, we and all thy church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him, that he made, etc., etc., etc. Do you hear the language of this? It's the language of oblation, of offering ourselves to God. And because of this concern of the clarity of the gospel and the way that ritual and liturgy shapes you over time and the way you talk to God and relate to God, and because they saw, man, we've been living in centuries of the effects of the way this liturgy has shaped all kinds of cultures in the way that they think God works, which is God is a judge looking down on you until you get it right. And if you get it right even a little bit, I'll give you a little grace to hopefully help you along the way, climbing your ladder to me. They saw that as contrary to the gospel. They read their Bibles and said, Paul's not saying that. The word of God's not saying that. Jesus wasn't saying that. We want clarity about this issue. And so as Cranmer was looking at the received liturgy, translating it into English, one of the things he said is we need to... The distance between the time where Jesus says, take, eat, this is my, I give myself to you, and the time we receive it has to be zero. Why? Because the gospel's at stake here. And I'm not discounting, and I don't think Cranmer would discount, that these words are beautiful words. They're glorious words. And, as, as Cranmer would give us, they're great words to be said after communion. Why? Because it's the word of God that births this kind of prayer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the faith to offer this kind of prayer. And we might think that this is just sort of splitting hairs, but the reality is people are shaped by this stuff in the way that they think about talking and relating to God. So now turn back with me to the columns that are before us. In 1789... Um, up until that moment in the United States, before the before, uh, United States became an independent nation, uh, we were worshiping with the 1662 prayer book. That was the liturgy that was shaping the people who uh, colonized and lived here. In 1789, we'll backtrack, as America gained independence, um, of course, the United States wanted to establish a U.S. expression of the Anglican communion. They wouldn't have used those words, but they wanted an Episcopal church in the United States. There was a guy who became the first bishop named Samuel Seabury. He went to England to be, uh, this was after Declaration of Independence in, in 1783, 1784. Samuel Seabury goes to England to go to the, the bishops there and say, consecrate me as a bishop so that I can help lead our church back in the United States. And they said, we're not going to let you do that. And the, the sort of presenting reason, I mean, you could say, you know, you feel the tension. It's like, why would we want to bless this group of people that just rebelled against our country? But one of the very real things that Samuel Seabury would have to do based on the Constitution 
of the Church of England would be to swear allegiance to the king. That was part of the, the liturgy and what he would, the oath he would have to take as a bishop, right? So he couldn't be consecrated there. So Samuel Seabury goes up to Scotland where they have a different kind of thing going on, separate from the, the kingdom, and says, will you guys consecrate me so that I can go back and be the, the first bishop of the United States? And they said this on one condition, on one condition, that when the Episcopal Church in the United States is established, you established the liturgy that we use in Scotland, which happens to be what we have in 1789. What we have in 1789 which dates back to some Scottish issues when the Puritans were kind of in power in the the middle of the 1600s and the the Scottish church, uh, under the the influence of Archbishop William Laud, uh, wanted to create a different liturgy to worship by. This was their liturgy. It included what we know as the anamnesis and epiclesis and oblation. And so those prayers between institution and reception came into our prayer book from the very beginning of the founding and the ratification of the American prayer book. There they are. And so now we have this, what I'll just say is kind of a merit-based approach to receiving the grace of God put back into our liturgy, something that, um, something that really would have sort of shocked the original architects of the prayer book, that this would have been done. Because again, gospel's at stake here. So you see that move. They took the oblation. Anytime there's red, it means that there was a change in the next column. That's kind of how I'm helping highlight what these are. When we move to 1928, we see uh, some more um, changes there. The moving of the Lord's Prayer up, the moving of the Prayer of Humble Access down. And this is starting to look like a more familiar order if you've grown up Episcopalian, right? And uh, even... Yes, so, and then in 1979, look at uh, the changes. There were some changes, introductions of some new things that have never been in an English prayer book, Um, and that's what you see there. You see the addition of the Benedictus to the Sanctus, uh, the addition of an actual moment separate from the words of institution where there is a breaking of bread, and the addition of the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Never had that been in uh, the prayer book. So I'm just showing you how these changes have been. And what's funny is tradition is almost only as long as our personal memory. You know what I mean? Do you get that here? That any generation views tradition oftentimes through a real short lens because that's how we're wired. That's just how we are, what we know, right? Um, But you can see how probably people at various stages of the evolution of the prayer book could have argued different about what this tradition was, right? Tradition is wonderful. In fact, if you can dig through our audio, go back to a teaching by Mark Ginolet on tradition. Here's what tradition is at its best. Tradition is, at its best, listening to any previous generation and how they wrestled with the truth of Scripture and expressed it in their day and age. That's what tradition is at its best. That's why we should listen to it, because we have blind spots when we listen to Scripture on our own or in community in the 21st century. And we need the other iterations of the way the Spirit of God worked in other generations. We need to listen to them, right? That's that's the best of what tradition is. But you see, 
how this evolution uh, has shifted the way that we worship. Um, and if, if this idea holds, that there really is sort of a gospel-based way of approaching the, the Lord and being shaped by this gospel, and if there really is a, a merit-based way where we give to get, the way we conduct our ritual makes, makes all the difference in the world for how this shapes us, okay? So when we look at Advent 2016 and what happened there, um, and for those of you who are around, uh, we, I think we botched it in not communicating what I'm communicating to you right now well, so that you could understand that number one, Advent wasn't going rogue. Advent wasn't sort of creating its own um, liturgy here but really trying to be faithful, number one, to the word of God and to be faithful to what we would say is our tradition as Anglicans. We really were trying to be faithful to that, recognizing that, you know, um, it, I mean, if you notice, Advent 2016 doesn't exactly look like 1662 or 1552. There is some, you know, difference there. And that's, that's only because there wasn't a, a feeling of a need to change everything but the most important things that would bring us back in line with this sort of gospel-shaped way of approaching God at the table. So you see that after the words of institution, we do pray the Lord's Prayer and the prayer of humble access, and those are really the only two things that happen before we receive. And then if you notice, uh, because this prayer of oblation is not there, we rotate it in, actually in line with the way the prayer book originally did it, leaving it as options after communion. And so during Advent and Lent, you'll notice that that post-communion prayer, which always makes us stumble the first few weeks, so that we can pray these words ourselves, not the minister praying them, but us praying here, because of your great grace through Jesus Christ, we offer and present ourselves as living sacrifices. Take us, use us. What wonderful word births faith shape. You know, it's beautiful that way. It's beautiful that way to be able to utilize these words and actually have these words be the prayers of the people. That's where I'm going to stop and open it up to questions of all kinds. I'm sure you have. What questions do you have? David's got a microphone. Don't be shy. Zach, what what was the rationale to the extent there was one or the thinking in 1979? for the adding of the Benedictus and the other prayers? Yeah, one of the things that was really in vogue in the 20th century leading to the 79 prayer book was uh, rediscovery of ancient manuscripts of all kinds that showed us what older liturgies did. And if, if you know your sort of history of the church, especially the Protestant church in the 20th century, there's a big ecumenical movement. And so swelling in the hearts and minds of the revisers of the prayer book was we want to be one unified church, and we want to exhibit that in our liturgy. So one of the things we wanted to do was to go back to liturgies that predated Cranmer, because you will hear them say these kinds of things. Cranmer was a little bit ignorant of some of the resources that were available, which is kind of true. There were some things that Cranmer was totally unaware of. Uh, he was definitely aware of the Benedictus. Um, but the reason they added it back in was to connect this with older liturgies. The reason Cranmer would have avoided that was because the language of the Benedictus, uh, whether we know it or not, because I don't think you and I interpret it like this. Blessed is, if you look at the language of this. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
This was often for medieval Christians when they heard the Benedictus. It was the time where they maybe implicitly understood that Jesus actually came into the bread. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord into these elements. So you'd find in the medieval church ritualized acts accompanying the Benedictus that would hold the host up, that would lift it up in a way of saying something powerful is happening right at this moment. You know, and again, because if we go back to what we said, oh, it's going to take a while. What we said about the way that, I'm going to, one of the things that the reformers were concerned about with regards to the gospel was any ritual or practice that basically took your eyes off the gospel ball. The Benedictus was one of them, but that's why they added it back in. So I answered and then overly answered your question. Tim. Zach, uh, in some of our services, uh, possibly uh, thinking specifically when we sing as far as worship during the five o'clock, I've noticed that there is uh, Kyrie eleison in Latin, mm-hmm. Lord have mercy uh, in right. English. Where does that uh, fit into liturgy? Uh, at some services, it seems like in my mind, I remember it being a part of liturgy. It may just be a part of worship. Right. Uh, it's one of my favorites. It's awesome. The Kyrie is one of the most ancient practices of the church, to pray and or sing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's something that dates back centuries. Um, and we, it's utilized in, in the prayer book um, right at the top of the, the communion liturgy. Like, uh, it's, not, it's not depicted here, but you'll notice that once we hear the summary of the law, we either speak or sing, Lord have mercy on us. And we talked about that last week, why that's really valuable that there's that interchange, because that kind of answers one of the questions uh, asked by Matt Menendez last week, which is, why don't we, like morning prayer, confess our sin at the beginning of the communion liturgy? Well, we do. We hear the law, and then we go, Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Yes. So, so the dropping of the breaking of the bread is, a, is a, to try to get the superstition of something actually physically happens at that point? Or yes. What? Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, if you look at it, was only introduced in our prayer book in 1979. Right? Hey, Zach. Uh, the anamnesis and epiclesis. Yeah. Uh, that came in with, with America from Scotland. Right. Is that a holdover from Catholicism? Yes. So, before the 1552 prayer book, there was, a, there was an English prayer book, the 1549 prayer book, which Cranmer and others would have recognized as a half measure. And in that prayer book was more, a more roughly equivalent translation of the Latin liturgy of the time. So if you Google 1549 prayer book, you'd find in English these prayers in this order largely. So one could say that when, um, when the 1789 prayer book was ratified or when some of these things were reintroduced in 1979, that people were going back to an older liturgy. It's true, they were. Uh, they were going back to an older liturgy, both in English and in Latin. The question was, is it in line with the gospel? That was the question. That was the question. That is the question for the Advent. Yeah. Zach, a, a question about our language and style, because we use some phrases from the 1928 prayer book in, right. Our, in our right, and um, presumably 
in 79, they eliminated that because they felt it was archaic or mm -hmm. maybe not as accessible. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, I, I sympathize. There is a, a real sympathy I have with the impulse of the 79 revisers to say, we need to be able to talk to God in our own language. I mean, the reality is um, worship is ultimately not an exercise in beauty and aesthetics. It's an encounter with the living God. And if it's an encounter with the living God, how would one human being in the 21st century talk to him? I think the 79 revisers were thinking, we want to get closer to that kind of language. So in speaking of the type of language that would be uh, modernized and contextualized, I have great sympathy with that. The thing is, with the 79 prayer book came not only language changes, but theological changes. There were different emphases coming to the fore. And I might even say that it wasn't so much that they were directly attacking the gospel as much as they were offering competing voices. That's kind of the language used in our commentary and guide to the liturgy. Competing voices were brought. And so if, if I'm sort of shouting the good news of Jesus Christ to you, and all of a sudden I've got three people coming, reading the paper, reading the dictionary, you know, say, saying something else, you can't hear the gospel as clearly. That's how I describe the way that uh, what happened in the 79 liturgy worked. But there was also... In, in the 79, the people leading up to it criticized the received prayer book as being way too down on humanity because there was a big movement in modernism and in the sort of rising theological liberalism of the 19th and 20th centuries to be more optimistic about human... I mean, study this sociologically and historically without talking about the church. There's a great optimism during the Industrial Revolution about how good a society we could become, you know? And there was the same thing going on in the church with theology. It's like... Gosh, miserable offenders, we're not that bad. You know, we're not, come on, like, we'll eliminate that one line, you know. And it's, it's that kind of idea that was in vogue and that those people taught to the revisers. I mean, not only do you have to sort of look into the mind of the revisers of the 1979 prayer book, you have to ask, how were they educated in their seminaries? What were their liturgical textbooks? What were they reading? What was their theology like? Who was teaching them? What... What biblical past, what doctrines were at the fore? What, what doctrines were being criticized? And what you find uh, is that the doctrines being criticized were this really low anthropology of humanity being innately sinful. They wanted to foreground the image of God, which is biblical, but foreground it to such that we re really want to talk about humans as bad as, as they are, right? Because there's so much to affirm about humanity. And the other thing that was being attacked was uh, the atonement, the atonement of Christ Jesus. So between... The, the sin of humanity and the kind of wrathy blood atonement of Jesus Christ, both those things were concerns of the revisers. They definitely wanted those things to be muted. They say that. They say that in their writings about uh, why they made the changes that they did in the prayer book. Don. Zach, that brings to mind um, noticing how uh, in 79 and, and after, uh, in our selections of readings and in the asterisks with uh, certain stanzas in our hymnal, we seem to sometimes um, pull our punches a bit and take out the, 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 the low anthropology uh, verses and, and stanzas. Can you yep. speak to that, how, how yes. the Advent looks at that and how we, how we choose? Yes. Well, I mean, if you're trying to make liturgical revisions in line with your theology, you must address the singing of the church because... God knows we're, we're indoctrinated by our songs, right? And so accompanying the revision of the prayer book was a, a revision of the hymnal. 
And so not only were words changed for poetic reasons, they were changed for theological reasons. And so sometimes wrathy, things that have to do with God's wrath were taken out of our hymnal. Low anthropology, you know, anything that mentioned sinful humanity being bad, not, not anything, some is still in there. We have to be selective. But um, that stuff was taken out as well, such that even in the singing of, of Christ's church, those doctrines were being foregrounded, you know, and uh, our need of Jesus and Jesus' atonement were backgrounded. Yes. I don't think there's really time for this, but I know the, uh, the general convention is starting to meet in the, next, in the upcoming week. I'll let Andrew answer that. Okay. <laughs> just the, you know, the yeah. further changes to the Book of Common there Prayer. Are, there, are, um, there are changes that are pretty inevitable that are coming to our prayer book, and um, we've been talking and praying a lot about those internally as clergy and even as vestry. You know, we've been aware of those things. Uh, the general convention happening in Austin is, is happening. And um, what Andrew would say to you is that you, you may not realize it, but the prayer book's already been changed. We're kind of in this weird limbo where uh, general convention has approved the changes, but the new prayer book hasn't kind of come out and been officially ratified. So um, we're at an interesting place in, in the life of the Episcopal Church. Yeah. There's one more over here. Okay. All right. I know these are tough things, and if there's something on your heart, uh, I am going on vacation on Tuesday, but after I get back, um, I'd be glad to talk with you, especially if you want to go. I mean, there's lots of things that went I couldn't talk about because there wasn't time, but I, I hope that this has been clarifying. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we ever always and only wants to submit ourselves to your lordship and your leadership. And you revealed yourself primarily in your word. And so we, trying to be faithful to, like the Christians of old, we want to listen to that word faithfully. Forgive us for the ways that we hear wrongly, assert and insert our own self-righteousness and pride into the situation. And forgive me, Lord, for uh, the way I do that all the time. Have mercy on us as we move forward. Help us, Holy Spirit, be so near to us that we and this place and these people would never depart from your word and your gospel. And we need you to hold us fast because we're fickle. We're prone to wander. Have mercy on us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.